You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. Whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, 007. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I've no compunction about sending you to your death. But I won't do it on a whim, even with your cavalier attitude towards life. After the fall of the Soviet Union, rogue Russians steal a powerful weapon. To stop them, Agent 007 must face off against Agent 006. We wrap up our series of James Bond movies by talking about the cardinal role of the GoldenEye Nintendo 64 game, if someone can be a sadist and a masochist at the same time, and how clicky pens can cause both anger and joy. Then we find out if GoldenEye stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third and final James Bond trilogy installment of the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief. Joining me, as always, my buddy, my friend, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me, Alan Noah. And, you know, we're doing three Bond movies now. We could do more down the road. You know, I wouldn't be opposed to that if we wanted to pick some more at a later date. We can even do more Bond films with the word gold in it. Several more. Yeah, there's Goldfinger and The Man with the Golden Gun. And of course, we're going to talk about the movie GoldenEye, but we can't talk about the movie GoldenEye without talking about the Nintendo 64 game, which I believe the full title was GoldenEye 007. I believe so. And to put it in context, uh, we grew up with the NES and the Super Nintendo Sega Genesis era. And it was basically a fact, you know, when people say death and taxes are the only guarantees, it used to be the only other guarantee it was that a video game based on a movie was going to suck. Well, yeah, and also movies based on video games. Well, at this point in GoldenEye, there's no movies based on video games. Uh, I guess Mortal Kombat maybe came out this summer. Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, I guess that one sucked. Uh, I think there were a couple more. Street Fighter? There were a few. Uh, Street Fighter, I feel like, was later 90s. I could be wrong. Well, whatever. The point is, is that movies turned into video games and video games turned into movies don't usually work well, but GoldenEye on Nintendo 64 was a big deal. I spent so much time playing that game freshman year I had to maintain a 3.0 grade point average to, to keep a scholarship that I had, and I didn't do that. I got like a 2.96. Had it not been for GoldenEye, the video game, I probably could have kept that scholarship. My buddy Craig had a Nintendo 64 in his dorm room, and he was a ROTC guy. So, you know, like he was good at shooting guns in real life. And I guess that doesn't necessarily translate to video game skills, but it did in his case. And he would constantly kill me in this game and taunt me and make me want to play one more time, just one more time, so I would get him. I never got him. 
Well, I mean, it was the perfect storm. People were excited about a new James Bond. And, you know, James Bond had not really been popular really in our entire lifetime. We knew James Bond, but the Timothy Dalton ones weren't really that successful. It had been several years, half a decade since uh, they finally, they're going to bring James Bond back. There was this new guy, Pierce Brosnan. And and you also have the dawn of 3D games, which, of course, leads to the concept of a first-person shooter, which Nintendo didn't have any. And Nintendo it was generally more of a family-friendly console. So right. they had one shooter in the beginning that was GoldenEye. And they happened to have given this to a company that was red hot at the time called Rare. And Rare was most famously known probably at that time for having made Donkey Kong Country games, mm-hmm. which were massive hits on the Super Nintendo. After you know Mario 64, Zelda 64, and Mario Kart 64, GoldenEye is really up there and arguably is famous as any of those three yeah 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 did you spend a lot of time playing it uh in college i really didn't because i mentioned this before but i didn't really have consoles i mean my parents wouldn't get me any consoles uh and so i never had a super nintendo genesis i bought them much later used and i wound up buying a n64 junior year of college so well after the peak of the system i think the playstation 2 was coming out like several months later so i didn't play that much i definitely played some but uh i was not like a golden eye kid Gotcha. I mean, I wasn't good at it, like I said, and I don't think I ever played the single player version of the game where you would like go through, you know, the plot of the movie. I think I only played the multiplayer. I remember the Moonraker laser was a good weapon because you didn't have to reload it and it made a cool like pew pew kind of sound. And there was the man with the golden gun, right? Right, where if you hit somebody with that, then they died instantly. But you only had one bullet, I think, right? It was something weird like that. There was some drawback to that weapon. Yeah, maybe like you couldn't reload quickly or something. Something like that. Something. I don't remember exactly. The best character to be was Odd Job because he was so short, he was hard to see, and like it was cool to pick Jaws because like he's a big, tall, scary-looking dude, but no one wanted to pick Jaws because he was easy to pick off. And I remember sitting in my buddy Craig's room, and the rule was no Odd Job. Like that was just like the the rule of the room. You were not allowed to pick Odd Job. Well, that that's funny. Uh- People forget this was a first-person shooter. This was not over the internet. This was four people on one television. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously you could look at the other parts of the screen and see what's going on. And that was part of the skill because, you know, you couldn't really sneak something past your opponents like that. Right, right. Very true. And, you know, like I said, it was the most famous back then. But, you know, it's not like the kind of game that people still play today. And if you try to play it, it is very dated in terms of first-person shooters. But it was a groundbreaking game. It's still fun, but uh, it's not like playing Ocarina of Time today or Mario 64. Right. And it might not show up on the new Nintendo Switch online service because there's like a whole rights thing with the... uh Nintendo 64 game, I think. Oh, that would be a shame because if they could finally fix the multiplayer and allow you to, you know, not know where the other people are, that would be a huge addition. That even though the the graphics aren't as good, that would make it a lot of fun. Yes, that would be cool. Get on that, Nintendo. But enough about GoldenEye the game. Let's talk about GoldenEye the movie. And in this movie, James Bond is charged with finding out who stole a weapon called GoldenEye. 
GoldenEye is a satellite capable of creating an electromagnetic pulse anywhere in the world, and it was stolen by former MI6 special agent 006. As Bond faces his former compatriot, he also battles villainous Xena on atop and her deadly thighs. Will Bond save the world, or will 006 use GoldenEye to send England into the Dark Ages? So I do not need to ask you if this was a big box office hit, because I remember when this movie came out in 1995 that it was a really big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal because I think people were excited for James Bond again. Uh, you know, the 80s didn't have, they had kind of at the tail end of Roger Moore's career as Bond, and they had the less successful Timothy Dalton ones. You know, we're also getting into the era of the mid-90s when special effects are really starting to come into their own and CGI is coming, and you can have a $60 million film, and that's what this was. And, uh, you know, $60 million might almost be mid-level budget these days, Yeah, but in 19. 95 or 94, 93, whenever this was filmed, this was a huge chunk of change. And it opened at number one on November 17th, 1995. And uh, actually that weekend, the number four entry was a film that starred two, um, two people were in, uh, they're actually uh, famous for being in a GameCube game, a Nintendo GameCube game. Two actors are in a GameCube game? Correct. Now, these two actors, are they siblings? They are. Are they twins? They are. Actually, they're not identical, I just found out. No, they're fraternal twins. Uh, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. That's correct. And how do you know that they're the stars of uh, GameCube Game Now? Because you bought me that GameCube game. It's called Sweet 16 License to Drive or something like that? I think it's called Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen's Super Sweet 16 License to Drive. (laughs) I think I bought it for like your 23rd birthday or something. (laughs) It was so bad and Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you sure about that? Because we played it and what it was was it was a weird clone of Mario Party and we were like playing it for a gag and I do remember we actually like had fun (laughs) playing some of the mini games. Yeah, yeah. We were playing it for a gag for like every day for a couple years. (laughs) Um, No, I guess it wasn't a terrible game, but it was definitely the kind of game that why would I ever buy it? I wouldn't, but you bought it for me and uh, we got some good mileage out of that. But wait, they were in a big movie that same weekend? Yeah, a movie called It Takes Two. I remember that film. I didn't see it, but I remember of it because, like, my little sister was eight at the time. So it was in the brief zeitgeist at that time. I see. We should do a Mary-Kate and Ashley movie on the podcast one day. I think this might be the only film that was ever released widely. Because I know they had a whole, like, direct-to-VHS empire. I thought there was another one. I could be wrong. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But either way, this film reignited the James Bond film uh, franchise that we have today. And it wound up uh, grossing over $100 million domestically, 106 to be exact. So it made a ton of money worldwide. It was a huge hit. And you know, arguably, without the success of GoldenEye, we wouldn't have uh, No Time to Die. Right, right. The Bond franchise was considered dying until GoldenEye came around. And the cold open of the movie, it starts with this epic, amazing bungee jump that Bond does off of this very tall dam. It almost looks like the Hoover Dam. It's supposed to be in Russia. But this is a really just cool-looking stunt. It's not Pierce Brosnan, but it's still a guy doing this thing for real. And it's 
really damn cool. I think just it really was important for this film right from the get-go to show this is not your Roger Moore hokey, uh, you know, we're not going to have a wah-wah sound effect as someone crashes. This film is completely different. Yeah, it shows that this movie is real and serious and cool and also really seriously cool. Right, and this film is released in 1995, so audiences in 1995 know, of course, it's 1995, but this film does something very clever. The opening sequence is a flashback, but it doesn't specifically say 1986 or anything like that. It shows the USSR. To us, it's not so glaring. It could just kind of be like, oh, okay, this is an older film. When was the Soviet Union? When did it fall again? But to audiences in 95, they definitely know there is no such thing as a Soviet Union right now. So they clearly know that this is some time ago. Right. And then when it goes to the present, it says like nine years later. And even though it had only been six years between the last Bond movie and this movie, the world really did change in those six years because the Soviet Union was no longer a thing. And, you know, the USSR was a boogeyman in, I think, a couple of the Bond movies. A and, lot of them. Yeah, like the, the world had changed. So they were able to incorporate that into this story. And the story for this movie is, I believe, the first one that doesn't have any plot elements with any Ian Fleming book. This was purely original. And they incorporated what was happening in the world into the plot, which was smart. Right, they correctly use things like the Soviet Union has fallen apart and Russia and the satellite nations are, are not really strong. Like, there's a lot of chaos going on. And in this flashback uh, in the Soviet Union, 007, he is he's slowly infiltrating this base and eventually he has a gun pulled on him. But James Bond has not met his match because it turns out, luckily, this gun pulled on him is his companion. Right, 006, played by Sean Bean, who is best well-known for his memes. Right, I mean, Sean Bean is, is known as, he famously, he dies in every single film he's in. Right. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, if you ever see Sean Bean, eh, he's probably going to die in whatever you're watching. Does he always die, like, terribly? Um, the ones I'm thinking of, I mean, does he die terribly in Lord of the Rings? I don't remember at all. No, I think he just dies from, like, uh, arrows or swords or something. Oh, okay. And I guess being decapitated in Game of Thrones, spoiler alert for season one, retroactively, sorry. Uh, but, I mean, I guess that's a quick way to go. Right, right. It's better than falling, like, 30 stories and probably lying paralyzed before a radio telescope falls on your face. Spoiler alert for this movie. Right. Uh, but he is James Bond's friend, and they are on this mission together. They go through this base, and they both kill a whole lot of Russian bad guys. But then Sean Bean's character, 006, Alec, is held by this evil Russian general who's got a gun to his head. And Alec is saying, Bond, finish the mission, do whatever it takes, set the timers, blow them all to hell. And they're going to set the timers for six minutes, but then Bond improvises and changes it to three minutes. And the general who has this gun on Alec counts down to ten. Bond surrenders. He holds up his hands, but the general kills Alec anyway kills finger quotes as i'm saying that and bond has to escape he leaves the compound he's on a motorcycle that is going towards this plane the plane is moving the plane goes over a cliff and then bond goes over the cliff too and like 
falls into the plane. It's pretty cool. It's so cool. I, I mean, this opening is amazing. I love even the small details of 006. It's so cool. And James Bond was not a, th a real big thing in our childhood in terms of like a big movie coming out. But everyone knew what you meant when you said 007 and Bond, James Bond. People knew this stuff. And you had to see something like this. You know, you got 006 and you got this guy flying into a plane. It was so cool. Although, it does this one shot that I really hate in films, which is when the plane is going down, down, down. Is it going to make it? Is it going to make it? And then there's silence for a few seconds as the camera pans up a little right to the edge of a cliff. And then, the plane is all safe. We saw this in Flight of the Phoenix, and I remember Superman Returns had this, and Goldeneye here has it. I just find it completely non-suspenseful. It's a hokey thing because you know the plane's going to come up. But then we get to the credits, the theme song, sung by Tina Turner. This is a better Bond theme song. Not my favorite, but it's good. I mean, Tina Turner's got a hell of a voice, and... Uh, animation in the credits is basically showing you like the destruction of the Soviet Union. There's one weird shot of like a head that has two faces on it and then like a gun comes out of one of the mouths. But overall, I mean, I think it's a it's an effective theme song and animation and everything. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before in these podcasts. I, I find the James Bond theme songs generally kind of boring. At least this one kind of told a little bit of a story, whereas the other ones are just kind of, you know, silhouettes of women and guns, and I think they were mostly skippable. But it's part of the formula. It's part of the fun. You know, they always get great talent, so there's that. I think the song is fine. I just, eh, it's three minutes that I would just rather than get to the action. I get that. The opening action is Bond in a car with this therapist, analyst, someone who's supposed to like do a psychological profile of 007. And the music in this scene is really like bad. It's very like 80s-esque. It's really synth heavy. It's just weird for this movie in 1995 to have this soundtrack that really sounds like it could be from 1985. I thought that was a little jarring. You didn't notice that? I, I didn't notice that, no. Oh. But I thought it's a thrilling opening number, and it goes directly from Tina Turner to this high-speed uh, car going down sort of a Mulholland Drive kind of road. That's that uh, road uh, right on the side of the mountain. They're driving really fast, and suddenly this other sports car pulls up right next to them and is driven by this beautiful woman, this mysterious beautiful woman, and Bond gives her sort of the nod, and they're kind of sort of flirtatiously uh, racing each other. But the thing is, they're both going, uh, they're using both both lanes on a two-lane road on one of these mountainside roads so you know there's going to be trouble they almost hit an entire bike race and i just think it's really cool how, how they finally stop and the instructor that's with bond is finally like james bond stop immediately and he pulls the emergency brake in the middle of the uh the panel in the front seat and i just love that i always thought that was so cool yeah it is very cool and then this female analyst who is very mad at James Bond, then just succumbs to his charms. He, like, opens up the center console. There's a bottle of champagne. And he says, now that we're stopped. And she says, oh, James. And unlike what we saw two weeks ago in Thunderball, she is completely receptive to his advances. 
It's a little weird that he's making a move on this woman, but she's into it and it is infinitely less problematic than, you know, what we saw in Thunderball. Oh, this guy, Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, is a ladies' man, but he is not a uh, predator in any way. He's, right. He's not doing anything wrong here. And this film really is aware of the, of the problems from the 60s and 70s and arguably 80s films. And they will make several references to the uh, old James Bond habits. Because even though this is Pierce Brosnan's first film, this is not like what they did in the Daniel Craig films. They didn't reboot the series. You're supposed to kind of understand that this is the same guy that was Timothy Dalton, Roger Moore, and uh, and Sean Connery. Which is weird, though, because the first Bond movie came out in, what, like 62 or something? So 33 years ago? So even if that Bond was 20 years old, which he wasn't, but even if he was, then he would still be in his mid-50s, and it doesn't totally work out. I see what you mean, but uh, I think it's one of these wink-wink, we're not going to give an origin story, which I kind of like in this case, and let's just get on with it. Right. But this whole scene takes place in Monte Carlo, so then Bond goes to the local casino, and there he meets Anatop, the woman from the car, Xenia Anatop, played by Famke Jansen. Anatop? Anatop. (laughs) <laughs> it's not the craziest name of a woman in a Bond movie. That is, of course, Pussy Galore. But on a top is kind of like, <laughs> it kind of makes you chuckle. But in this casino, they're playing, um, what game are they playing? Oh, they're playing Baccarat, again, which is, I think it is the last time you're going to see this in a James Bond film. But Baccarat is, it's such an old game and you know in the Ian Fleming novels it's Baccarat when they made Casino Royale with uh, Daniel Craig that was an Ian Fleming novel and they updated it from Baccarat to Texas Hold'em I don't think the poker craze had happened in 1995 so I don't think the audience would really be able to follow poker so I think here Baccarat is one of those all right I don't really understand one of these games but just okay he wins or he loses based on where these chips go yeah I wasn't really following the the game, but it doesn't really matter. Bond beats on a top and they're kind of flirting a little bit and Bond is tailing her. He's talking to Money Penny and like telling her what he sees and she like sends this fax to his car about Anatop and the fact that she works for the Yatnis organization and the fax in the car thing is kind of funny because like uh, they thought that was really advanced back then and I guess it would have been in 1995 but the thing that I didn't really get is why was Bond at this casino why was Anatop at this casino was Bond trailing on a top was he like going after her to find her for some reason or did they just happen to bump into each other they don't really explain that you're right they don't uh there's a couple fun things in this scene uh you get the throwback to uh the uh, classic films because how does he order his drink of course right he does say he wants a vodka martini shaken not stirred and we did not see that last week or the week before this was the first time in the three movies we've watched where he orders his classic signature drink that way Right. And do you remember how uh, Daniel Craig orders it in the first film in in, uh, Casino Royale? I think he orders a vodka martini and then the bartender says, 
shaken, stirred, and he says, I don't care. Some, said, something like that. Yeah, he says, does it look like I give a damn? It's such a great line. It's a nod to it, but, you know, updated now. So it's great. There's another really dated 1995 line, and Zinnia on the top, she is from Georgia, and not y'all Georgia. She's from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, and she's saying, Georgia's very different now. Land of opportunity. Obviously, she's a criminal, so when she's talking about land of opportunity, she means, you know, this stuff's right for the picking. But uh, it was known back then that these countries, they were not stable. Right, and perfect for a criminal like her. And she doesn't just steal things and, you know, drive really fast. She kills people with her thighs. She is able to squeeze the life out of men with her legs which she sometimes does during sex, not always. And she also gets off on it while she kills these men with her thighs. It gets a little confusing because Famke Jansen, she, she's so beautiful. And there's this kind of craziness about this woman that's kind of like having an orgasm as she's crushing men to death. But I do find it intriguing because, you know, these are sociopaths, these people. And, you know, I I kind of find that intriguing that the villain, it just whether it's sexually or not, she, she really enjoys killing. and, and <laughs> She I, enjoys her work. Yes, yeah, she does. And I just find that's a small little touch. And I think Famke Jansen plays it really well. Like these subtle things, like she's like licking her lips as she's doing it. And like throughout the film, whenever she's murdering and killing people, she's really getting pleasure out of it. Yes, you're 100% right. I agree. There is a scene later where it also looks like she enjoys like when she's getting beaten up, when she and Bond fight. And I really don't know enough about this, so I might just sound really ignorant. But like, aren't those two different things like sadism and masochism where it's not common where you actually like both? Or am I totally wrong about that? Well, I'll just say Zinnia on a top is no common lady. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we, we don't need to uh, to analyze it any further than that. That's fine. But on a top is there to steal this helicopter. Bond realizes it, but a little too late. And uh, on a top makes off with this new experimental helicopter aircraft thing. I love this part because it's really just this sort of military demonstration and they don't realize that Onatop has kind of hijacked the helicopter from the original pilot that's supposed to be on there. Just imagine the generals and the contractors that made this thing and and they're like, ah, there she is. We're going to be rich. The chief of military from England is here and probably America and other countries. This is great. It's working great. Oh, there it goes. And going a little far. Okay. They want to show the capabilities. All right. It's getting smaller. Uh, Can you guys call them back? It would have been awkward. I feel like it would have been a little awkward on that aircraft carrier. Right. And then Bond is like running over there. They're like, stop that guy. And they do. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, when they realize the plane's not coming back, like, yeah, see, that's what I was trying to prevent. But on a top gets away. Bond goes back to MI6 headquarters. He flirts with Money Penny there. And, you know, that's a thing that's happened in a ton of the other Bond movies where Bond and Money Penny always flirt back and forth. But here she actually calls him out for sexual harassment. She uses those words like this is what you're doing and it's not a thing that you should do in the workplace. And this is 
being a little reflective of the times. And I remember when this movie came out, there was a thing about like, is this new Bond going to be too politically correct? Because that was a thing that people talked about in the 90s. And I don't think this James Bond is overly politically correct, but by virtue of them talking about sexual harassment, they are sort of acknowledging that, you know, the times have changed. Yeah, and it's not quite there yet because she's more like, James Bond, that's sexual harassment. Almost like looking at the camera, like, I said it, guys. We're acknowledging it. But, like, it's not like she's like, don't you dare like say that to me? And she's like, "Oh, you." It's a little bit of that, but but we're acknowledging it, and this is not right. right and uh, he doesn't do it again. Exactly, exactly. And then there's a new M. It's Judy Dench. This is her first appearance as M. The first time the character M had been a woman. Also showing that the times had changed. And then when she's talking to Bond, she calls him a misogynistic relic of the Cold War. Which is what a lot of people thought about James Bond in real life. Absolutely a nod to those people. When I heard that, I was like, this is absolutely summarizing the problems people had with the Sean Connery Moore era. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Meanwhile, in Russia, there's this computer center and there's this guy, Boris, played by the always great Alan Cumming. And he is a hacker and he's like describing how he does his hacking. He references how he confuses the modems with his spike that he sends to other computers Test of time, modems. I mean, it's a lot of techno babble that you just kind of nod and go, okay, that sounds about right. They said the right words. You're not really supposed to follow it. But Boris is talking with this woman, Natalia, who works there too. And then on a top and the general from the, the first scene in the movie come to the station and on a top kills everybody, perhaps reaches orgasm while she does it. But not everybody, everybody, because Boris is outside having a smoke and Natalia is in the break room grabbing a coffee and the two of them escape. But while Anatop and the general are there, they steal this golden eye weapon and it sends an electromagnetic pulse to the station where they are to, I guess, destroy the evidence of what they've done. And Bond and M and MI6 are watching this live via satellite. I just realized this is basically the same MacGuffin that they're trying to steal in Fast 6, as as you know, Al, a fan of the series. I do not know, and I am not a fan of the series, and don't even say that in a sarcastic way. Someone might misinterpret it, okay. and I have a reputation to uphold. Fine. But it's basically a, a, something that you can use to fire a laser from space, and it's called God's Eye. In the Fast movies? I think it is called God's Eye. I just realized that. That's a little bit too close. That's lame that uh, they ripped off this movie. But M sees this happen with Bond, and then she charges Bond to go out and find Goldeneye, see who stole it, see why they stole it. There's a scene with Q, and this Q is the one holdover from the previous movies. M, Money, Penny, Bond, everyone else had been recast, but Q remains the same guy. Right, and that's like what I was talking about before, that you are supposed to imagine that this is the same guy. And he's talking to Bond like they've been working together for a million years of like, do take this seriously for once, James. 
Yeah, exactly. So we're in St. Petersburg and General Oromov, uh, he says, and this is such a, like what I was talking about before, he makes an excuse, even though he's the one that orchestrated GoldenEye's theft. He says that GoldenEye was taken by Siberian separatists. That's what he tells the central government. And they tell her that uh, there is a survivor from the station that they attacked. And he's obviously when one of these like, a witness, you say, what is her name? And, you know, and where exactly is she? <laughs> what are her weaknesses? Right. And that's Natalia. Well, and actually, it's that there are two survivors and he knows about Boris. And we later find out that's not surprising because Boris is working with them. But he's surprised to learn about Natalia. So then when Natalia reaches out to Boris, then Boris basically sets a trap for Natalia so that the general can bring her in. The way that Natalia reaches out to Boris is she goes into a computer store and is like, I want to buy lots of computers for my school. And, you know, she's describing all the computers she wants to buy, but she doesn't really want to buy them. She just wants to use one in the back room so she can reach out to Boris. And the screen says in big flashing capital letters, incoming email as it's showing Natalia and Boris emailing each other, which even in 1995 was not how you were notified of an email. And also, it doesn't really look like an email interface. It looks like they're basically chatting. It looks more like AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least it wasn't one of those mid-90s like animations of like an envelope floating across the screen. But that would be more realistic for 1995. I mean, that's what AOL looked like when you got an email. It was like the letter in the mailbox. Actually, you're right. It did pop open. Yeah, I mean, like that would be more appropriate for the time. I do love that uh, she asks for, when she's asking for those computers, she asks for, I want 14.4 modems. Do you remember 14.4 kilobaud modems? They were the slow ones, right? Like the 28.8 was the faster one? Well, I remember when 14.4 was the fast one because before oh, that right. was 2400, then 9600. 14.4 was actually 14,400. Oh. Ooh. 14,400 baud. I don't know what that is. Is that is that a lot of bods? I, bod? I, it is. It's 14,400 of them, actually. How many bod do we have in your apartment right now? All of them. <gasps> wow, that's a lot of bod. I don't know what any of these words mean. <laughs> Let's go from bod to bond. Okay, yeah, good segue. So Bond is trying to track down Giannis, this criminal overlord who has this criminal organization, And to track them down, he meets a CIA agent named Wade. And I thought it was weird that the CIA contact is not Felix Leiter, because that's Bond's CIA friend in a lot of the old movies. And I think that the reason they didn't use that character was because in the last Timothy Dalton movie, Felix Leiter lost his leg. So maybe that guy's retired now, and this is just a new CIA guy. It doesn't really matter. But he suggests that Bond go and find Valentin Sakovsky, who is a guy who Bond previously had some dealings with in some adventure that we never saw. I like this guy. He kind of reminds me of uh, John Rhys Davies' character in the uh, Indiana Jones films. You're right. We don't hear his backstory, but it's not needed. We we get it that there was some tussle with James Bond, and Bond got the better of him, it seems. But they're willing to listen to each other for mutual benefit. 
Well, Valentine does not like Bond because he walks with a limp and Bond gave him the limp and he's like firing his gun at Bond, you know, like not hitting him, but just trying to scare him. And he says, you know, my knee still hurts when it's cold. And do you have any idea how cold it is here in Russia? Dimitri, how much of the year is it cold? And then this one random background goon behind him says, well, it depends. And then Valentine's <laughs> like, shut up, whatever. And I just, I really, really love that line. It's a throwaway line. I don't know if it was improvised, but it certainly felt like that. And I genuinely laughed out loud at that. This one guy who's like really trying to answer the question about weather patterns in St. Petersburg in an accurate and thoughtful way. I love that. Right, when obviously the only thing that the audience is going to know when they stereotype Russia is going to be, oh, it's cold there. And he's like, no, actually, it could be nice at part. It's funny. It is. You're right. But the reason Bond is here, because Valentin is, you know, he knows some scumbags there. And he's like, I need you to set me up with the people that stole that helicopter. Right. And Valentin tells Bond that he doesn't know who Giannis is, but he does know that he is a Cossack. And... This is apparently a real thing, but there's a group of Russians called Cossacks. Cossacks? I might be saying that wrong. But in World War II, they fought against the Nazis, but they also really didn't like the communists. So after the war, these people surrendered to the British and thought that they were going to join the British army and fight the communists because they they were Russian, but they really didn't like the communists But the British actually just gave them all back to Russia, and a lot of them were executed. A lot of them were, like, sent to Siberia. And when Valentin is telling the story to Bond, Bond says, yeah, that was not England's finest hour. That is interesting. Yeah. And Valentin does set up this meeting for Bond and Yanis. It's not Yanis who shows up. It's on a top. They fight. She really likes it. But then he gets the better of her, and she does bring him to Yanis. And this is where we meet him, and we find out that it is, in fact, 006 himself, Alec. Alec Trevian, I think? Yeah, that sounds about right. And I remember the first time I saw this movie in 1995 in the theater, I was confused because... In the first scene in the movie, we see Alec get shot in the head. And in this part of the movie, he's got like some scarring on the side of his face, which, okay, maybe that would have happened from the explosion that happened in the chemical factory in that first scene. But more than just his face being disfigured, he should also be dead from the bullet in his head. I understand now that... He wasn't really shot by the general, who is now his partner. They were working together, and it was all staged. I get that, but they really don't make it clear. And I was paying attention to it watching the movie this time. I understand why 1995 Alan was confused by that, because it is ambiguous. There's no line where it's like, oh, I get it. You faked your own death. And I sometimes hate lines like that where they really spoon-feed the audience, but I thought this was unclear. Well, I agree with you, and I knew that he came back. So in the beginning, I kind of was watching. I was like, oh, it looks like he's going to get killed here. And it is clever. You think he gets shot in the head, but we never see it. So so that's fine. 
But you're right, it's not really explained. All it needed was a line or two. Because I actually, when I saw this in 1995, what I thought happened was I thought he actually did survive the bullet to his head somehow. Yeah. And also the explosion, but somehow now got really pissed because Bond didn't save him. Yeah. And now he hated England. But now you realize, no, his whole plan was he was supposed to turn on Bond the whole time, be reported as dead. So now he could be, you know, a man that has no history, no past, and, and you know, start his criminal underworld yeah but the other part of it why it doesn't make sense is in that first scene where they're like storming the russian chemical plant alec kills a lot of russians like while i was watching i was paying attention he shoots a lot of bad guys so it's not like he's just in there kind of like pretending to be on the english side he really is killing his fellow russian countrymen also we assume that he and this general have been working together for many, many, many years. They worked very closely together. They planned the whole faking Alex death thing then, and they're still working together 10 years later. But when Bond mentions to the general that, oh, you know, your friend here is a Cossack, he's surprised. The general didn't know that. How can the general not know that? But Valentin, this other random criminal, he knows that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. There are some connective tissue things that don't add up. And I'm sorry to be like that guy poking holes, but just because I was so confused by that in 1995, I was looking for it now. And when you really kind of hold a, a magnifying glass up to it, it doesn't all add up. I actually assumed I had missed a line or two, like when I was taking notes on this or something. I just assumed I missed it. But you're right, it just needed a one little thing. It needed that, pun intended, that Bond villain thing where when Pierce Brosnan's character is tied up, that's when Alec needs to, like, now I'm going to tell you what happened to me in those years since you abandoned me. He almost does it when he was saying, like, I knew you switched the, the timers from six minutes to three minutes. But he doesn't really tell him what his motivation was. I feel like he should have. In this scene that we're talking about, in this, like, statue graveyard kind of thing, when Alec first reveals himself to Bond, he does do a little bit of the spiel. But there's just like a couple of lines missing. But Bond is captured. He wakes up in this helicopter that Anatop stole. He is strapped in there with Natalia. She's trying to wake him up. At the last possible second, she does wake him up. He's able to hit the ejector seat right before the helicopter explodes. But then they are captured not by Alec and his bad guys, but by like the good guys in Russia, the Russian authorities who think that Bond stole this helicopter because he was there in it and they're under arrest and Bond and this, you know, Russian cop are screaming at each other and then Natalia yells at them and is like, you guys stop it. You're just like boys with toys, kind of like putting them in their place. And she just calmly explains the situation and that it was this Russian general who was behind the whole thing. And he's like, oh, okay, well, that's good to know. Thank you. I will look into this. But then the general comes in and shoots him. So there goes that. And that leads to probably the most memorable sequence in the movie, in my humble opinion, when the general kidnaps Natalia and Bond goes after them in a tank. It's a car chase, but a tank chase. And it is awesome. I remember loving this as a kid and it still is very, very cool now. 
I love the tanked scene when Dominic Toretto is driving and Brian O'Connell. Oh, again, I'm talking about Fast and Furious 6. There is a tank chase scene in that film. Didn't we talk about some other movie where you were like, oh, yeah, it's basically the same plot as Fast and the Furious? Yes, we were talking about how Fast and the Furious 1 is basically the same as Point Break. Oh, okay. So basically, this very popular franchise, which I insist is terrible, even though I've never seen it, is basically just recycling old movies. But with cars. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, So I am more confident in my assessment of those stupid movies. But then... While, like, Bond is, like, destroying the city in this tank, eventually the general takes Natalia, puts her on this high-speed train. The train looks like it has a face, which is kind of cool, and I remember that from the uh, the Nintendo 64 game, that one level with the, with the train with the face. And then Bond uses the tank to derail the train, and it's so cool! Like, he fires, like, one giant round at the train, and then jumps off of the tank but leaves the tank in the middle of the train track so that the train's going to derail and Anatop's like ooh he's going to derail us and she's like licking her lips and uh everything about this sequence is awesome oh yeah it's fantastic I do love that part on the train when uh, Bond and Natalia, they're tied up. And Alex says, I'm giving you the same courtesy you gave me. I put the timer on six minutes. And then he walks away. And right when he walks away, Bond is like, we have three minutes. Right. It's a callback to the earlier scene. They are able to escape. Natalia is trying to track down Boris because she's she knows that he's behind it. And she's able to determine that he's somewhere in Cuba. She's not able to figure out exactly where because they have to leave before the train explodes. But they go to Cuba. Why Bond brings her is a little iffy, but she's like, well, who else is going to disarm the satellite? And he's like, well, you got a point there, but also not really because he works for MI6. And there's got to be some other technical people who would know how to disarm the satellite. But whatever. Then when they're in Cuba, they have like this moment together on the beach. They're watching the sunset and they're talking about how Bond feels and he's upset because it's his friend and now he's going to have to kill him. And I feel like this is also like the modernization of Bond where Natalia's talking to him about how he feels about it. But it's also like, hey, don't you need to get going and find this guy and this satellite? Like, Do you have time for just like a romantic interlude here? But also maybe they do because unlike some other Bond movies, there is no like ticking clock. It's not like we know that he's going to set off the device at noon on Thursday or or something like that. So they don't really know exactly what their timetable is. Right, right. They also have no idea what they're looking for either because they know they're looking for what has to be an enormous satellite dish. But an enormous satellite dish is going to be enormous. Right. So they're like, where the hell is this thing? They're flying around. There's nothing but forests and lakes and rivers and just they can't find it. And while they're in the plane looking for the satellite dish that they can't find, they're talking, just chatting, Bond and Natalia, not wearing headsets. Three movies in a row. Three different James Bonds. In Thunderball and in Moonraker, they were in helicopters. This time they're in like a Cessna or some other kind of small prop plane where it would be really, really loud and you can't just have a conversation with the person sitting next to you without a headset. 
But apparently in all of these Bond movies, that's what they do. Bond doesn't wear headsets. He can just chat casually in an aircraft and it's fine. Yeah, but the aircraft itself is not impervious to bullets. Right. It's shot down. And there's a battle in the jungle between Onatop and Bond and Natalia. And the way that Bond kills Onatop is she's tethered to this helicopter for some reason. And he just kind of like gets her stuck in a tree. And then like the helicopter is pulling her. And I think the reason they do it that way is so that it's not like Bond kills this woman with his bare hands, which obviously they don't want to do. But it was a little bit like, how exactly does she die? Oh, I actually thought they killed her in a very clever way. I thought she gets uh, killed by having her back cracked. And I thought that's exactly what she did to the first general that we saw in this film, presumably, uh, you know, many other victims. Oh, okay. I didn't think she was cracking their spines with her legs. I thought she was just suffocating them. But okay, fine. Potato, potato. All right. I'll buy that. Right. Well, now, Alan, let's flash back a little bit. Okay. November 16th, 1974. I remember it well. I was a negative five years old. Carl Sagan. You know who that guy was, right? I want to say he's the guy who invented Pizza Hut? Almost, Al. Almost. He was one of the most famous professors in Cornell University history and the most famous astronomer in history. Dr. Sagan, along with Frank Drake, they developed a message that they wanted to send out to interstellar space, to send out to aliens. We know we could send this out. Speed of light, we're going to aim it at some stars near here. It's a message that talks about humans. We're carbon-based. We're DNA. Here's where we're located. And they needed a radio telescope, Al, a radio telescope to send this thing out. Do you know which radio telescope they used? The one in this movie? The Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico, It is a fantastic piece of, well, I have to say it was a fantastic piece of hardware. There's a really cool scene. I don't know how they did it. I'm going to guess they used miniatures. They did. Yeah, I I mean, because it's it's definitely not CGI because CGI 95 would have sucked. And it's really cool. Basically, the satellite dish was underwater. And they basically drain what is obviously really filmed at the Arecibo uh, radio telescope. But they drain what is presumably a lake. And there's the hidden... uh, Uh, satellite dish fantastic right when they're inside you know like the headquarters underneath the dish there's this big shootout and you know all the bad guys are shooting at bond and there's this one moment where bond is like crouched behind like some concrete column and a bullet kind of like hits like a few inches from his head and bond just kind of like moves his head to the side a little bit and he just looks like kind of annoyed by this bullet that really was inches away from blowing a hole in his head. It's just so James Bond cool. I love that one little look that he gives. And he's putting explosives all over the place. But then when he's captured by Alec, Alec knows how to disarm the bomb because he was a double O agent. He knows all of Q's tricks. He takes the watch and pushes the button. And uh uh-oh, there goes the bombs. There's no way that these bombs are going to blow up now. Yeah, I love that because there's a subtle little line. He doesn't just take the watch and say, I know how to do it. He takes the watch and goes, 
is it still on the upper left part of the watch? And it is. And that's such a, like, dumb thing for a spy agency to do. But it's one of those things you could totally miss and have the same secret forever. You know, like, if you're the Dallas Cowboys and you have some secret play, you can't have that for 20 years because you know some of these players go to other teams, right? Like, it just seems like this is so important. You have to change this up every few years. Yeah. But then you can't get mad at Q because he's just, like, this sweet old guy who's making things that explode well that's why they made him younger so we can get mad at q in the new films right but luckily for bond he is still able to have the explosion that he needs because one of the other things that q gave him is a clicky pen and the clicky pen is an explosive device and boris gets a hold of it and he's thinking about how he can undo the hacking that natalia did because natalia is making the golden eye come into the atmosphere and it's going to burn up and Boris has to figure out a way around it. And while he's thinking, he's clicking the clicky pen. And clicking the clicky pen makes the explosion happen. And clicking clicky pens during test of time recordings makes Alan go maddy maddy. Stop it! While I was watching that scene, James, I was thinking of you because behind the scenes thing, sometimes when we record, James has a clicky pen and he'll hit it and I'll be like, don't do that. The audio is going to pick up. Don't click the clicky pen. And I have yelled at James about that. So while I was watching the movie, I was thinking of you, James, thinking like, Taha, see, clicky pens make you explode. They're terrible. Proves my point. And I was thinking the entire time with that, how am I going to talk about clicky pens when we discuss this scene? So it brought you such anger and it brought me such joy. So, you know, it's one of those moments that we could split the screen of us both watching at the same time, the movie reflecting in our eyeballs, you getting angry and me getting happy. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Also in this scene, Alec does finally explain like, his plan and what he's going to use the GoldenEye satellite for. And that's basically to send an EMP to London and fry all of the computer records and the bank records. And he can steal everything from the banks and basically send England back to the dark ages. They're going to learn the cost of betrayal for what they did to the Cossacks in World War II or after World War II. Yeah, and, you know, something else we do get in this film is we have a master actor as the villain. We have Sean Bean, and I just love some of the lines he says to Bond. Where It's another callback to, again, realizing that this is supposed to be the same guy as Sean Connery and uh, Roger Moore. And he says, Bond, did you find comfort in all the men you've killed through the years and all the women you failed to save? He couldn't save some of the women, even even his uh, companions in MI6, and some of his lovers die in some of the movies. His wife dies in one of the films. I really like the references in this film to the old Bond. Yeah, it could feel like perfunctory, but it doesn't. It's well delivered by Sean Bean. It's a good reference to the past while also bringing it into the present. It works on every level. And no specific references. It's not like he doesn't reference something from Octopussy, you know, that you would have to know. So it's just done really nicely. And they have a, a great fight, the, the two of them. They're basically fighting over the satellite dish. There's these huge cables, three huge cables coming from all the sides of the dish. And suspended hundreds of feet in the air is this huge apparatus of some sort. You put one of these inanimate carbon rods into the gears. The whole thing's starting to smoke and this suspended apparatus is becoming unstable 
Right. And the fight between Bond and Alec has its moments where it's pretty cool. There's also a few parts that aren't choreographed super well, like when Bond is, like, hanging at the bottom of this satellite thing, and then Alec, like, jumps down. It's like, why would he do that? He doesn't need to do that. Also, it seems like that would be a dangerous jump for him, and then he does fall. It could have been a little bit better, especially at the very, very end of their fight, but it basically ends with Alec falling down, presumably to his death, but then Bond catches his feet, and Alec says, for England, James? And James says, no, Alec, for me. Because in the very beginning of the movie, when they were on their mission together, they say, for England, yes, for England. But now it's not just for England, it's also personal, and Bond drops Alec from the satellite dish, which weirdly doesn't kill Alec. No, no. Um, I mean, I was thinking about that, but I've read that a lot of people that jump off of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, a lot of them survive the fall, but they just like break their legs and they wind up drowning because they can't tread water. You can possibly survive this. It looks like he's paralyzed. He's just sliding down the ground. And, you know, I guess as long as your head doesn't split open and I mean, the guy's got massive bleeding. He's not living long. But he lives just long enough for this apparatus to basically blow up and fall down on his face, which falls down right after Bond is able to leap off of it onto a helicopter. Right, because Natalia somehow left the the base and got a helicopter. She, like, is holding the helicopter pilot hostage. She's got a gun on him. She makes him fly over to Bond to rescue Bond. They fly away from the exploding satellite And then they just kind of like jump out in a field and then the helicopter just flies away. And I was like, wait, there's a bad guy who's piloting that helicopter that they just let go and he's just leaving. He's not going to like turn around and come back and kill him or whatever. Like no one cares about this guy. It's a little strange. I mean, it's not an attack helicopter. What's he going to do? Oh, something. What do you think, he's going to fly it sideways and kill them with the blades or something? Maybe it was just one of these, like, rent-a-pilots. Maybe. I don't know. I just thought that was a little bit weird. But then they have this moment together, Bond and Natalia, and they're all alone in the Cuban jungle. Or are they? No, they're not, because Wade from the CIA is there with the Marines. And Bond's like, so this is where you were with the Marines and my backup? Thanks for literally nothing. And Wade's like, da 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 da. Oops. Yeah, it totally makes the American uh, covert operations look like fools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do nothing. Because they're actually brilliantly camouflaged in a field three miles away from the action. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Doing nothing. Also, there was a one bad guy in the helicopter that they just let get away. They offered absolutely no help. But that's where the movie ends. And so, James, I will ask you, what do you think of GoldenEye? Does it stand the test of time? Well, like I said, the Nintendo 64, it's a great console. And, you know, it may come back on the Switch. But some of these games are dated, but... No, the movie, James. The movie. The thing we've been talking about most of this whole time. Uh, Okay. Well, you know, this is the third Bond film we've reviewed. And, you know, there's... Many, many others. We can always revisit this uh, at some point. I think this was fun revisiting from different eras. Oh, yeah. 
And, you know, you really can see the progression. The progression going from Sean Connery to Roger Moore in 65 to 78, there is really an advancement in special effects. While Moonraker's space special effects were kind of cheesy by today's standards, they're way better than some of the stuff we saw in Thunderball. And you couldn't have done Moonraker in 1965. But I think the leap between Moonraker and Goldeneye, yeah, it's 17 years instead of uh, instead of like 13 or so. But I think the leap is so much more in terms of really maturing this character. Yes, he is, for one thing, he is a modern man. He's not a misogynistic guy. Yeah, he still sleeps with a number of women. That's fine. And he's not basically saying, sleep with me or I'll have you fired, like we saw in Thunderball. And I will say, they're not quite there yet. I mean, there's some stuff, uh, you know, money pennies, like, oh, James. There are some plot elements that we've talked about in this film that don't really make sense. And unfortunately, I find that happens a lot in Bond films. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, like a Bond script needs needs to be sent to whoever one of the good script doctors is to just go, great script, I threw in like four lines here and there that just explain that one missing thing in four different scenes. And, And, you know, this film is missing that. I think Pierce Brosnan is a fantastic Bond. He is cast so well. He's got that great combination of handsome but intellectual and debonair. And he also is believable that he can beat up people. So it's really well cast. I think they did a fantastic job. I think the the uh, rumors that he was actually supposed to get the role from Timothy Dalton, but he was in this show called Remington Steel. Yeah. And he couldn't get out of it. But... You know, Thunderball and Moonraker, they're a series of, of action sequences that have a, an overall plot, but uh, each individual action scene doesn't have anything really to do with the plot. I think this film is a lot more coherent than that. Every scene is necessary. Yes, I agree with you. Why does Natalia come with him to Cuba? Why does Alec jump down to fight Bond on the bottom of the telescope? There's a couple holes in here. But overall, I think it's a thrilling film. Pierce Brosnan is great. Uh, Uh, Sean Bean is great as always. It could have been a gimmick to make M a woman, but you bring Judy Dench in there. She is so good. And she's immediately like, Bond, you're a misogynistic relic. And it's like, I'm a little scared. Like, she is so good at this. And, you know, I I think there are flaws in this film, but it is such an improvement on the last two films that we saw. And yeah, I hadn't seen this film in a while, but I would see this film again, as opposed to the other films that I don't really need to see again. So by that, yeah, 1995's GoldenEye does stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? The movie, not the video game, does it stand the test of time? Yes, I think it does. I think it is a very enjoyable movie. The computer stuff doesn't really stand the test of time. And there are these plot holes that are annoying. And it's just confusing about Alec and why is he a bad guy and when does he become a bad guy and all that stuff. But... I like this movie more than I like Thunderball, and I like this movie more than I like Moonraker, but also, I just like this movie. It's just a fun movie to watch, it's enjoyable, it's entertaining, and it doesn't have a lot of the problems that a lot of these older Bond movies do have, and I can pick apart things that I've already mentioned, but 
Overall, I do think that this is a good movie. It's a solid James Bond movie. It's the first Bond movie I ever saw. It's the first Bond movie that Eli ever saw. I watched that one with him. And as soon as we were done, he was like, can I watch some of the other movies too? And I think that's cool. This movie makes you want to watch more Bond movies. I don't know how much he'll like some of the older ones, but I do think he'll enjoy the Pierce Brosnan ones at least. And I also don't think that all of the Pierce Brosnan movies are of this quality. I think they do go down from what I remember. But um, this is a really solid movie. And yeah, GoldenEye does stand the test of time. Yeah, I think you make an excellent uh, analysis there when you say it's not only a good Bond film, it's a good film. This film right here, if it was, if his name was uh, you know something else, it would still be an exciting film. Whereas if Thunderball was not starring James Bond, I would say skip it. Right, 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 right. All right, well, that's going to do it for us this week. That's going to do it for our James Bond trilogy, Bond-tober. We could have called it Bontober. Now I figure it out at the end of the last episode. Oops. Next week, we will be back for our annual Halloween episode, and we are going to be talking about Donnie Darko, a movie that came out 20 years ago, October 2001. It's a movie celebrating its anniversary, and it's a great Halloween movie. I am excited to talk about Donnie Darko. In the meantime, though, of course, as always, we want to hear from you at Test of Time Pod, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Follow, like, share, retweet, do all of those. Not at the same time, one than the other. Visit our website, testoftimepod.com. If you missed any of our old back episodes, you can find them all there. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.